Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome once again to the Ask Abhijit Show episode 158. I hope you are all doing very well. And uh, today we have a whole bunch of questions that I have selected. I am sure I have selected more than I can answer, but let's see how, my, how many I can answer. Before we do that, let me see who all is there, who all is present in attendance on the live chat. I can see Shaurya Sagar, Dr. A. Ayushman Mishra, Om. Kamlesh Singh, Yami P, Lambodhar Obama, Monish Sabarinath, Rohit Martian, Nikum Mukesh, Hell No, Gaurav Sharma, Rakshit Mishra, Jai Vardhan Yadav, Mahesh Kalani, Aman Saini, Kitan Vankhede, Raja Kumar Talks, Aivav Broken, Feminist Slayer, Pranav Vaibhav Arsh, Advait SH, Mateo Perez, hello from Texas. Uh, Jasman Rod Singh, Abhinav, Aditya, Aryan Sardesai, Crazy Brain, Karan Nalavat, Ruchika Pal, Illuminati Creek, Arnav, The Best News Channel, Ranjita, Romeo, Amisha, Shivam, Gautam, Batman, Napster, Jigar, Tejomeg, Vladimir, Adityanath, Ombekerikar, Des, Dhruv, Kumar, DK, Tuti Futi, Jitendra Kumar, Tanuj, Enon Dutt, Tavish Sikri, Bharat First, Mukesh Singh, Vidrohi, Abhishek, Aman George, Dr. Suryakant, Harshit 2.0, Namaste, Bot Gaming, Qatar Sanatani, good to see Harshit again, Aru Basu, Rishiv, Kumar Ja, Shaurya Sagar, Ashwin, Arpita, Sri Charan, Teja, Ketan Vankhede, Chirag, Gaurav, Top 10 India, Alpha, Geopolitical Dubey, Totan, Chaudhary, Mahesh Kalani, Vineet, Chetan, and a million other people, and um, Darth Plague is the dev, Ayushman, Chirag, Arnav. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for being on the live chat with me tonight. And with that done, let me get into the questions. Let's take a whole lot of questions, as many as, you can, as we can today. Question number one is by Swati. The Antarctic Ocean ice reached a record low recently, and the Arctic is also melting four times faster than the rest of the world. What do you think will be the impact of these changes? Well, so you're talking about climate change, the global warming phenomenon that we are all witnessing. Climate change is a reality in case some people don't know. Climate change has always been a reality as long as this planet has existed. The um, billions of years ago, see, our planet was formed about 4.5 billion years before today, uh, about 100 million years after the formation of the solar system. And originally, it was a hellishly hot in a planet with a very toxic atmosphere, and it's evolved a lot ever since. Life first emerged 3.77 billion years ago, and lots has changed after then. So right now, we are going through a phase of global warming. Uh, uh, ice sheets are melting, glaciers are melting. So what's going to be the consequence and the impact of these changes? Eventually, the sea levels will rise. So in the past, sea levels have risen and fallen. About 10,000 years ago, uh, 12,000 years ago, uh, the sea levels were much lower than what they are today. And India and Sri Lanka were connected as a single landmass. Sri Lanka was part of the Indian subcontinent. It was connected to the Indian subcontinent. Indonesia, the archipelago of Indonesia was connected to the Asian mainland and so on. And there may most likely even was a land route to Australia through Indonesia. So that's when the sea levels were significantly lower, maybe 120, 150 kilo meters lower than where they are today. Uh, now the ocean levels are going to rise because of the global warming. So what's going to happen is that the low level 
parts of the low lying parts of the world will get submerged eventually over the next century two centuries maybe maybe the next 50 years maybe the next 20 years some of them uh, nations like uh, the maldives will cease to exist they will get submerged uh, and uh, the same thing could happen will happen eventually in the sundarbans region of bangladesh um, so lots of territories, lots of uh, such regions will get enf- engulfed uh, by the ocean. They will go under the under the ocean. So um, yes, the the contours of the world, of the of the earth, of the nations, of the coastal regions will change. That's going to be the impact of these changes, and it's going to c- cause human migrations and uh, problems and issues, which we will have to learn how to deal with. So we are right now in the initial phase of this. If you look at photographs of, let's say, the Statue of Liberty, taken a century, I mean, taken, let's say, at the turn of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, and you see photographs taken today, there is no real appreciable, discernible rise in the sea level. So right now we are still kind of where we were 100 years ago. But eventually it's going to start affecting the sea levels and the sea levels will rise in low-lying parts of the, of the planet will get submerged eventually. So that's going to be the impact of these changes. Mohammed Yaqub Khan says, why does the Indian government not issue free downloadable Indian map on their website or direct Google to do that? Because it is still difficult to find authentic Indian maps and many organizations and even nations show the wrong map of India. Yes. Uh, lots of nations show the wrong map of India. Even nations like, uh, let's say, Israel, etc. If you see their official website, you would see that the map of India is depicted incorrectly. It represents uh, things the way they actually are as opposed to India's territorial claims. Some parts of India are currently temporarily occupied by certain other nations. It's a matter of time and before we get them back, maybe more. That's a whole different story. So the question is, why doesn't the Indian government issue a free downloadable Indian map? Correct The, the correct Indian map. Well, I, actually, it does have it. Let me uh, share that. The uh, map, the correct map of India. Where, where can we find it? I think it's called the Survey of India. Give me a second. Let me let me locate that. Uh, where do we? Where can we find it? The political map of India. Let me share that on the screen. Okay, the political map of India. So there is this website called the Survey of India. It's an Indian government website. It's part of the government of India, and it has the political map of India. It's a uh, Available in three different languages, Hindi, English, and Sanskrit. Let's take a look at the Hindi map. Click on this. Okay, it's opening in a new tab. Let's open it over here. So here you have the correct map of India in Hindi. Right? You go back and you can see the same thing in, let's say, Sanskrit or English. Let's open the Sanskrit version of the map of India. It's showing uh, Western India here. It's showing uh, uh, Eastern India, the East Coast of India, Baleshwaraha, Bhuvaneshwaraha, Puri, and so on. Right? So the correct map of India is indeed available online. I would say, suggest to the government of India, please do a better job of publicizing this so that people know how to find it. But in case you don't know, you can just search for this survey of India on Google. 
go to google type in survey of india map map of india and you will be able to locate this page hopefully it will not be too hard so that's what we need to do if you if you want to see the correct accurate map of india uh, that's what we do so that's the solution right now obviously if you look at google and all they show various different interpretations of the map of india if you go to google dot uh, google maps the indian version it will show the correct map of india to some extent but if you go to google uh, googlemaps.com maps.google.com it will show the incorrect map of, map of india that is the situation right now but the correct map is indeed available okay sarvada bharat says recent targeted killings of terrorists in pakistan and training of taliban regime officers in india do you find any coincidence is there exchange of deal is there is there an exchange deal you eliminate our enemies and we will train your people what's your take on this my take on this is that india, the government of india does not indulge in any activities that would support terrorism we do not do that we will uh, help the the current government of afghanistan which is the taliban government when it comes to diplomatic activities etc so let's let's see what the what kind of uh, cooperation etc is happening let me put that on the screen uh, i'm sure we can find something taliban training diplomacy all that stuff uh here we are so here's the news that we hear india to train taliban in diplomacy students from thailand and malaysia attending as well so the mea has launched a four days uh, diplomat training course which will see the presence of diplomats from the taliban um, immersing with indian thoughts and india immersion program and this will be, this course will be imparted to various students from various countries by the indian institute of management kolikode calicut kolikode cozy code i don't know how to say it yeah it's kolikode uh here's a different report of that taliban reaches out of uh, out to india embassy to train afghan students uh, afghan diplomats in kabul so this seems to be a different thing the embassy maybe the, the 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 trainee diplomats will come to the indian embassy in kabul and maybe the thing will be uh, available online for them maybe that's a possibility it's a four day day training program for afghan foreign ministry officials in kabul beginning tuesday i'm not sure which tuesday this is from march 14th and uh, clarification from delhi follows the course is fully online and will be conducted by the iim kolikode it's not as if somebody will be coming to india for it okay so these two taliban students the afghan students will do it from afghanistan itself maybe they will have to come to the indian embassy in kabul to uh, get access to this four day training program so that is the kind of uh, training the government of india will provide to these uh, aspiring diplomats from afghanistan who are part of the taliban government so uh, that's definitely what's happening when it comes to terrorism india will never support terrorism india will not um, see there are nations that support terrorism pakistan obviously is a terrorist regime it's a terrorist nation it has been uh, indulging in various terrorist activities in india for decades and which nation supported pakistan well i can think of two major nations that have supported pakistan mainly it was the united states the united states financed and funded pakistani terrorism in india for decades later on china also took part in this and they also supported pakistani uh, terrorist activities against india india th this is a line that india won't cross this is my official statement i am not giving you any unofficial statement here right so india does not condone any form of terrorism india will not support any form of terrorism we condemn all form of forms of terrorism and uh, yes so the the 
extent to which we will cooperate with the, with the Taliban, it, it, it is up to, it's limited to over the board activities, diplomacy and things like that. Okay. And economic cooperation, uh, economic aid to Afghanistan that much. So that is my take on this. India does not support terrorism. Arush Mahajan says, as India sent a big help to Turkey after the earthquake, the recent uh, terrible earthquakes, uh, but still Turkey betrayed us in the United Nations and they supported Pakistan. Why? Look, please understand, my dear friends, there was no agreement between India and Turkey that we send you aid and you support us in the United Nations. There was no such agreement. When you say that someone betrayed you, it means that they there was an agreement and they went against the agreement. That's the definition of a betrayal. You had a deal, you had an agreement, you had a contract, and then they broke it. That's called a betrayal. When India sent aid to Turkey, there was no such agreement. India did this of its own volition. India did this voluntarily. Turkey appealed to the entire world for aid, and India was one of the first nations to respond. India sent a whole lot of aid. India also sent trained personnel for rescue operations. India sent a whole bunch of doctors to set up field hospitals and treat the survivors. That's what India did. And India did this without any expectation of something in return. That is what we have to understand. Let's not get emotional and say that Turks betrayed us. We know what Turkey's geopolitical stand is. We know what what sort of ideology you could say Turkey espouses. And we know what nations Turkey supports. Turkey has been a long, long-standing, long-time supporter of Pakistan. It, it has certain compulsions geopolitical compulsions, religious compulsions, which compel Turkish politicians to support Pakistan. Right? So there was no agreement between India and Turkey that you're going to stop doing this once we send you the aid. India did this on its own volition. Why does India do such things? Why? Then the question that arises is why does India help nations that are that are going to be ungrateful, supposedly, and, and, and not reciprocate towards India? Well, understand how the world works. You have to build a track, track record of being morally right. See, the United States keeps on harping about, about human rights and democracy. It will say that we have consistently supported and promoted human rights and democracy. And yes, verbally, they have supported and promoted human rights and democracy for decades. Their actions are totally contrary to that claim. They have been propping up... Uh, dictatorships all across Africa. They have conducted so many regime change operations across the world. They recently tried it in Georgia. They have done that in Ukraine. They will they will interfere in the internal affairs of various nations, including India. And their human rights record, well, but they keep on verbally supporting and, and promoting human rights and democracy. So they can claim that they have consistently supported and promoted human rights and democracy. So India is also now building a genuine track record of actually through actions supporting other nations. When the coronavirus pandemic hit us, India was the only large nation, major nation, to send to send vaccines free of cost to other nations. When the US would send vaccines, they would expect they, they wanted money in exchange. So what the Americans call aid is actually sales. On the other hand, India sent vaccines, the Indian vaccine that actually works, not the American vaccine. India sent the non-dangerous vaccine to various poor 
and hard hit nations without expecting anything in return, without asking for any payment. So India is building this track record. What does it do for India? In the long run, it will it will it will help the world understand what India is all about. It will ensure that the world trusts India because India is poised to rise now. I have spoken about this before. I spoke about it yesterday. China, this is no longer China's century. China's century is already over. The only nation that has any chance in this century to surpass the US economically and otherwise is India. Only one nation. And when we rise, we are already rising. When we rise, we don't want the world to fear us. So we have to send signals to the world that we are not like China, an expansionist power, a hegemonic power, a rapacious power. We do not seek to, to exploit you. right? So we have to do these things to send that message across. We have to do it again and again, over and over again, to reinforce the message. So we we did that when the coronavirus pandemic happened. We we helped as many nations as possible without asking for money in return. And when it comes to these calamities, we are willing to help even nations that are very strongly anti-India, like Turkey, on humanitarian grounds. So when India genuinely rises and we will need the world to cooperate with us, they will be hopefully, willing to cooperate with us willingly without doubting our intentions. When China approaches a nation for cooperation, the people doubt what the true, you know, they, they, they wonder what the true uh, intentions are. With India, it will not happen. So that's the reason why India does these things. We are investing in India's long-term future. Okay, so yes, we, we do spend taxpayer money on these things. It's going to benefit the nation in the long run. Don't look at the world from a short-term window. Look at it from a big picture perspective. So for once, for the first time since 1947, we have a government that thinks long-term, that thinks long-term. That's what we are witnessing in action. So let's not get all emotional and wonder why the government is wasting taxpayer money. And let's not accuse the Turks of, of, of betraying India. We know exactly what they're going to do. And they have not surprised us. They did exactly what we expected them to do. That's fine. We don't want anything in return from them. We are building a track record. We are building, like they say, you know, you build a resume, right? You do the right things and you build a resume. So India is building its geopolitical resume. That's what we are doing. Shivam Chobe says, recently Natu Natu song won an Oscar. <laughs> Great achievement. Yes, let's rejoice. <laughs> the song was indeed awesome from all per points of view. Yes, I heard it was shot in Ukraine in front of the presidential palace. Do you think the Ukraine angle had something to do with the Oscar? Or is it linked with India's rising stature in the world? Let's find out what this is all about. Let us go to a good old Google search. Google isn't a threat these days, but let's go there. Um, <clears throat> all right, Google, plain all Google search. And let's let's search for Natu, 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 Natu. And let's look, look at the images. So here we have these two gentlemen doing their famous dance. And there's this building in the background. You see some of it here. You see it here. You see it over here. This is a, yeah, th there you have it. So take a look at the building. You know, you can see what it looks like, the characteristics of the building. Now let's search for uh, Kiev Presidential Palace. 
All right, Google tries to correct the spelling. That's fine. So it's the same building, as you can see. It is the same building indeed. So what happened is that this song, this song and dance sequence was shot in front. It was filmed in front in the courtyard, in, in the in the courtyard of the palace, of the Ukrainian presidential palace, where the great Shri Zelensky uh, resides. And this obviously, this filming was done before the, the hostilities broke, broke off, uh, uh, broke out. The Ukraine war began. The special military operation was ordered by Mr. Putin. So this entire filming was done before that. So you are indeed right that this uh, this entire sequence was shot in 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 the courtyard of the presidential palace, and that's the building that you see in the background. So the question is, do you think the Ukraine war angle has anything to do with Oscar? I don't think that. Uh, the Oscar was given to the song because the Ukrainian presidential palace was in the background. And I don't think it was given because NATO NATO sounds like NATO NATO. That's also not the case, <laughs> even though it's a nice joke. Um, I What I really think is that, uh, see, now it's, it's pretty much clear that in the long run, the next 20, 30 years, India is going to surpass China and eventually India will surpass the US as the largest economy. So... Uh, so the West wants India on its side. Then they want to give uh, awards and, and recognition to some aspects of Indian cinema so as to enamor Indians. Uh, with the, I mean, They want Indians to feel favorably about the West. And they know that Indians love foreign recognition, especially Western recognition. If an African nation or, 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 or let's say Indonesia or somebody gives uh, awards to to Indian cinema, Indians are not that enthused, but if it's the, if it's the West that does it, then Indians are all, all, you know, they rejoice and dance in the streets. So Indians still have this inferiority complex. So they want to uh, take advantage of that and make Indians feel like the West is on India's side. So it's about India's rising stature in the world. They want to capture the hearts and minds of Indians, which is very easy to do that. Say a couple of good things, Indians will love you. Especially if you are a person from the West. There are all these YouTube channels, all these YouTube channels of, of these Western travelers who come to India and see a couple of nice things. And Indians are like, they, they subscribe in millions. And there are these reaction channels from, from abroad that react to various Indian movies or, or whatnot. I don't know. Even in, even there are people who react to me as well. You know, uh, So they also get millions of subscribers. So Indians crave foreign validation, especially Western validation. So it's all about that. It's it's about leveraging that. So that's why uh, these days you will see, you know, uh, I, I'm sure in the future, lots of Indian girls, ladies will be given Miss Universe, Miss World titles or whatever. And uh, Indian movies will get more recognition in the West. It's because India's stature is rising and they want to capture the hearts and minds of Indians. And it's a long-term investment in that as well. So that's what it is all about. There is a geopolitical angle. There is, uh, you know, this sort of angle in everything. LOL. L-O-L. I give you R-O-F-L. So LOL says, what is the British Indian territory near the Maldives? Good question. I'm sure I must have spoken about this earlier, but let's revisit this matter. And for that, we have to visit the map. I did not open the map yesterday, which is uh, very unlike me. Where's the map? Here is the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Right. So let's find this British Indian territory near the Maldives. So I'm sure you know where India is on the map. Let's locate the Maldives. South 
of India in the Sea of Saurashtra, which is erroneously called the Arabian Sea. So here, here we have the Maldives. And the capital Male is over here. It's less than 1,000 kilometers from the Indian coastline. If we measure the distance, it's about 600 or so kilometers from Thiruvananthapuram in, in Kerala, Desh, Kerala Pradesh. So we have the Maldives. And if you go southwards from the Maldives, we have something that's called the British Indian Ocean Territory. So historically, the Maldives were inhabited by Indian origin people. Today also they are inhabited by Indian origin people, but it's a separate nation today. It's an archipelago. It's an extension of the Lakshadweep. We have the Lakshadweep over here, the, these islands. Malay is an extension of that. And the British Indian Ocean Territory is an extension of the Maldives. It was originally inhabited by Indian origin people and also some people of African origin. The And it, it's called the Chago Archipelago. C-H-A-G-O-S, as you can see on the screen, which is a French origin word. And the people were called the Chagosians. They were all expelled from this place by the British, by the evil, oppressive British occupiers of the place. And they were forced out of this territory. And most of them were exiled to either uh, Réunion or Mauritius. Now let's come back here and let's take a look at this. Why is it this? Why is this territory important? Let's look at the satellite images. Very tiny islands, as you can see. There is one... Uh, this is a coral reef which are, with a couple of islands over here. There's more over here. Danger Island, they call it. Over here, there are three brothers, I, I believe. Three brothers. What is it called? These three islands are called brothers. This is called... Oh, I, I guess not. I guess not. Perhaps I was wrong. Uh, anyhow, so let's come back to this place called Diego Garcia, which is the major island on in this territory so this island obviously it belongs to the british technically it's called the british indian ocean territory this is the island of diego garcia it has been handed over to the americans so if we zoom in you will find this big runway over here this air, this airport and if we measure the dimensions you will find that it's in excess of three kilometers long, 3.6 kilometers long, which means that the largest and heaviest planes can land over here. This is an American Air Force base, right? Um, and you can see some Pakistani presence here, Nasi Pakistan, number one, Diego Garcia. It seems like a restaurant or something. Over here, you can see uh, fuel tanks, fuel depots. What else do we have here? We have uh, various... Uh, restaurants and stuff like that it's all in indonesian for some reason for some reason um there's a 7-eleven over here in case you know what that is there's a dinosaur theme park so this is all run by the americans there is a port obviously where is the port here we have the port do we see anything interesting here i guess not unless we look closely we will not see anything interesting and uh in the south, we have uh, what looks like some other residential facilities. What is this? Ground-based electro-optical deep space surveillance. It's a spy station, American spy station. And once again, we have a Pakistani restaurant here. Very interesting. So this is the British Indian Ocean Territory. Uh, the the natives of this region who are who were of Indian origin and are some of some of African origin were expelled illegally from here. They have been demanding that they be allowed back. So this is 
historically it's, it was an extension of the maldives which means historically it was indian territory it is now occupied by officially occupied by the british but it's actually run by the americans it's one of the major air bases of the americans military stations of the americans in the world it's it's in a way similar to guam in the in in the pacific region where is guam all right, we, let's let's not go try and locate that right now. But that's what it is. So that is the that is the British Indian Ocean Territory near the Maldives. It is a legacy of the colonial era. At some point in time, it must have been occupied by the French. Then it, it is currently in the possession of the British, but run by the Americans. It should be free. It should either be part of the Maldives or an independent nation. Or if you look at the historical precedent, precedent. The, the way the Chinese do, then it should be part of India, actually. So eventually it will happen. We will get it done. Karun Yadav says, Australia doesn't have nuclear weapons. Then why are they buying nuclear submarines under the AUKUS deal? So Australia is part of the close-knit, the closest-knit uh, alliance of the US, the, the, the closest vassal state of the, of the US, which is the Five Eyes Nations. The US plus four more nations, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the UK. So these are the five English-speaking nations, four and the big boss, which is the US. Uh, now, the Australians originally had this, this uh, deal with the French. They were supposed to buy French Scorpion class or whatever class submarines. They had the signed agreement. Agreement was signed. It was done and they broke the agreement. They, they backstabbed the French. The French are very upset and they have gone for this US a deal. So the Americans will be selling them five or six submarines. The deal is going to cost them more than $360 billion, which is an eye-watering amount of money, shocking amount of money. And these are going to be nuclear submarines. What does it mean that a submarine is a nuclear submarine? It doesn't mean that it's going to carry nuclear weapons. The Australians don't have any nukes, unless the, the Americans have placed nukes in Australian soil, which is a possibility. But those will be controlled by the Americans. Australia as a nation does not have nuclear weapons. So why are they going for nuclear submarines? And what does it mean to be a nuclear submarine? A nuclear submarine is a submarine that has nuclear propulsion. Its engine is a nuclear reactor. So there's a nuclear reactor inside in which nuclear fission happens, which in turn drives a steam engine that generates electricity and produces the propulsion for the submarine. So that's what a nuclear submarine is. So you can have nuclear submarines without being a nuclear weapons state. And you can be a nuclear weapons state and not have nuclear submarines. So India could very well place a nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles on scorpion submarines if we can get it done. And we, India also does have the Arihant class uh, nuclear submarines. Two already are in operation. Two are being built right now. And we will have many more in the future. You know, better versions, better, uh, more enhanced submarines. So Australia, despite being a non-nuclear urban state, is going to purchase U.S. nuclear submarines in a deal that's in excess of $360 billion. That's shocking. So the advantage of nuclear propulsion is that you can essentially stay underwater indefinitely. And uh, you can, you know, even, even get the oxygen and everything recycled. So you don't need to surface for oxygen. When you have diesel 
engine submarines and all you have to keep on surfacing from time to time maybe once in a week or once in two weeks once in three weeks depending on the on the design to get oxygen and replenish your cells and all those things you also have something called air independent propulsion and there is a sterling cycle engines and, and hydrogen uh, fuel, fuel cells and all that so these are various technologies you can use the, uh, the air independent propulsion is typically quieter than nuclear propulsion but yeah so uh the advantage of a nuclear submarine with nuclear propulsion is that you can stay underwater indefinitely, months at a time, maybe in excess of a year if you can carry enough supplies and all that. Um, so that is why Australia is buying nuclear submarines from the US. Now, there's a very nice cartoon that I showed yesterday. Let me show it again. Uh, let's do that. So why have they actually done this? The French offer was much better, perhaps, for them. But this is a political cartoon. It's about uh, Joe Biden talking to Rishi Sunak. Joe Biden is the Prime Minister of the UK, and Rishi Sunak is the President of the US. <laughs> so I guess you know what I mean, right? Joe Biden is the Prime Minister of the US, and Joe and and Rishi Sunak is the President of the UK, or something like that. I'm sure you know what it is. So Biden tells Rishi, he calls him Richie. Then Richie, we told the Aussie guy that we wanted to park our China attack subs in his country, and he should pay us three sixty-eight billion dollars for the privilege, and he agreed. Ha ha ha. So essentially, that's what it is. The Australians are paying America protection money. Protection money. You pay up and you're going to be safe for a week. Hafta. So they're paying us the US protection money. And the submarines are US built submarines. They're extremely technologically advanced. The Australians probably don't have the know-how of how to operate the submarine. So most likely, even the crew will be American. Most likely, the captain will be American. So it's... It's America parking five or six nuclear submarines on Australian soil, on Australian waters, and Australia will pay the Americans for the privilege. That's essentially what it is. That's how the world works. Yeah? Nice. Dungar Singh Johan says, Why did the US bomb Japan nearly 3,000 kilometers from the US mainland? And why did the US not decide to bomb Germany, the leader of the Axis powers? Well, it's a good question you ask. You know, they... The 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 uh, justification for the nuclear bombing, the nuclear tests on Japanese civilians, is that uh, it helped America end the war early. Otherwise, it would have taken several more months for the Americans to uh, launch a an armed invasion of Japan. It, it would cost a lot of money and lots of lives will be lost. So we we were able to you know expedite the process so it actually was better for everybody in the from the big picture perspective less japanese died less soldiers died it, it was better so the question is why did they not do the same with with germany they could have simply nuked berlin and then end of story no hitler no germany end of story germany collapses so clearly there is more to it than meets the eye and they will say that there was a timeline the bomb development ended only at a certain time and only then by the time germany was already defeated almost defeated all these justifications will be made but the fact is that they decided to test nuclear weapons on japanese civilians not on german civilians so See, one can only speculate as, as to what the reason could be. Clearly, there could be a racism angle. The Americans were definitely, a, they still are definitely a very racist nation. Nowadays, obviously, black lives do matter. I'm happy to see that. That, uh, that is there. They deserve that, <laughs> the Americans. But historically, they have been a, an extremely racist society. When the World War II happened, the Second World War, there were many Japanese-origin people 
in the United States, Japanese Americans, these were all herded into concentration camps. The Americans did that. There were concentration camps on Jap on, on, on American soil in which were reserved exclusively for the Japanese, the non-whites. So, so there was an element of there were German origin Americans too in the US. They were not touched. But the Japanese origin American Americans were targeted and placed in concentration camps. So clearly there was racism, very, very strong elements of racism in the US at that time and until very recently. So one could definitely uh, see in a, in an element of racism in this. Uh, so yeah, that's what I can tell you. And obviously Germany was much closer to the US. I'm not sure what the distance between the US and Germany is, but Western Europe was by the time to some extent falling under US influence or domination, dominion. Um, so yeah, there definitely was an element of racism in the Americans deciding to nuke the Japanese and not the Germans. Ajit says, did Kush did Mauryan, did Mauryans establish the Khotan kingdom in Central Asia? Excellent question. What is the Khotan? What was the Khotan kingdom? Let's go to the map, and I'm going to show you a different map this time, so that we get a a, a different perspective. Okay, let's let's put this map on the screen. Khotan kingdom. Take a look. So the we, uh, we all recognize this map. It's the map of this Indian subcontinent and Eurasia. So the dark shaded region north of India was the approximate uh, region of the Khotan kingdom. So this kingdom was founded roughly 2000, 2400 or so years before today. Okay, that, and, and it existed until the beginning of the Turkic invasions of Central Asia and India. So the history of the Khotan kingdom is that it was established by Indians who came from Mauryan era India. So uh, the greatest emperor of the Mauryan empire was uh, Ashoka, Emperor Ashok, who was one of our greatest emperors uh, in terms of power he and, and in terms of the fact that he unified the entire subcontinent under one, uh, uh, under, under, his political dominion. So Ashok was one of the greatest of the Mauryan emperors. His He had multiple children. We obviously know about uh, Mahendra and Sangamitra. Uh, these two siblings he sent to Sri Lanka to propagate Dhamma. We know that. Uh, he also had a son, a son called Kunal. I believe Mahendra was his eldest son. But for whatever reason, Mahendra was not not in line to be the next emperor. So Kunal was in line to be the next emperor. But uh, and Ashok had multiple wives as emperors used to have in those days. So uh, one of his wives who had a different son was jealous of Kunal. She wanted her son to be the emperor. And she caused Kunal to be blinded. And uh, obviously she would not have done it herself. A number of people who were in her employment would have done that. So Kunal was blinded, and because of this, he could not become the emperor. So eventually, Kunal's son Samprati, who was Ashok's grandson, became the next emperor. Now, the people who blinded Kunal, obviously, it would not make Ashok happy that his son, the crown prince, was blinded. So apparently, the story goes, um, we're not sure if it is entirely true, but the story goes that these people, these, these high-ranking people, were expelled out of India, north of the Himalayas, 
and possibly it was they who founded the kingdom of Khotan, or maybe it was somebody else. But what we know is that Khotan was founded by Indians from Mauryan era India, and uh, and then it it flourished for a very long time until the Turkic invasions of Central Asia and India, which destroyed all traces of. Buddhism, Hinduism, and Indian culture and presence from Central Asia. So that's how the kingdom of Khotan ended. Uh, and Khotan, uh, you know, Khotan produced many scholars and all that. For instance, uh, there is a very famous uh, scholar who was of Indian origin, but who spent his life in China. His name was Kumar Ajiva. So Kumara Jiva was, was they, they call him a Buddhist monk, they call him a missionary. These are all, <laughs> you know, Western uh, perspectives. He was he was a scholar in the Vedas as well. He was learned in the Vedas as well, not just in, in the Buddhist uh, scriptures. So uh, I believe that his father could have been from Khotan or or his father probably was from northern India, probably Kashmir and his mother was probably Khotanese or from Kucha or something like that. So uh, very interesting history and it was definitely Indians who established the Khotan kingdom. Much of Central Asia was Indian or Indianized. Uh, there were multiple migrations out of India before 0 AD multiple waves of migrations out of, out of India, starting from the Rigvedic times themselves. And these uh, these people who went out of India established Indianized kingdoms all across Central Asia. And they kept, uh, they, they kept uh, track of their lineage and all that. And many of them claimed descent from Lord Rama and, and various other great rulers of India. And it was all, all of this was the Indian presence in Central Asia was destroyed, eradicated, wiped out by the Turks, the Turkic invaders who destroyed all traces and vestiges of, of Indian uh, culture and genetics to some extent from Central Asia. And today you will find ruined monasteries, ruined temples all across Central Asia. And those are rare because typically they will be destroyed and something else would be built on top of that. So, yeah. Saurabh says, did the Hyksos who conquered Egypt around 1800 BC, were they Indian Vedic people? Right, that's that's an open question. The uh, the origin of the Hyksos, the, the identity of the Hyksos, who were these guys? So the Hyksos conquered Egypt around 1650 BC, somewhere around that time, around 1650 BC. And they ruled Egypt for about a century or so, the 15th dynasty in Egyptian history. Those were the Hyksos. So these were people... Okay, let's take a look at the map because uh, that will help us understand what we are talking about. Let us go to the map. Where is the map? We need the map. Here is the map. Okay, I'm, I hope we all know where Egypt is. So here is Egypt, the present-day modern nation-state of Egypt. And as you can see, it is attached physically, geographically to Asia, to what is called Western Asia. So the invasion of Egypt by these foreigners, the Hyksos, happened from the Northwest. The Northwest is present day uh, uh, the, the, the 
it's it's israel jordan saudi arabia all of that and as we know around 1500 bc there were indianized kingdoms and empires in anatolia and present day syria we know about the mitanni we know about the hittites these were all indian origin rulers the these kingdoms the majority of the people in the kingdom were of local origin but the aristocracy the ruling class was indian they spoke sanskrit and there is unambiguous unmistakable undeniable evidence of that and this hap- this happened just a little while after the the conquest of egypt by the hyksos so uh, there is a possibility that there was a connection between the indianized kingdoms over here and the hyksos who, who conquered egypt and ruled for a century so what were the hyksos like let's take a look at what the hyksos looked like from egyptian depictions of these uh, foreigners so here is one example of how the egyptians saw the hyksos so if we look to the west of the image uh, to the right of the image uh, right all the way right you will see a couple of uh, egyptians who are wearing loin cloths or whatever it is and they are bare chested so the the two gentlemen on the extreme right of the image are egyptians and the people on the left are all uh, foreigners or hyksos so you can see that the hyksos are depicted as, as having light brown skin the egyptians are depicted as having dark brown skin and the the, the dress that the hyksos wear is is different some of the hyksos are bare chested some of them wear these robe like uh, outfits the hyksos ladies uh, are are they wear these full body robes with arms left bare and so on and they have these animals you can see mules or donkeys there are kids or children on 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 one donkey there are weapons and implements over here there is a double curved bow that one of these gentlemen is hold, is is carrying the one on the extreme left and he has a quiver full of arrows as well and so on and there are some of them who have spears and some of them have these curved swords and uh, they have other animals as well so uh, this seems to depict these hyksos invaders and eventual rulers of egypt uh, so these guys the hyksos they introduced lots of new things to egypt they introduces horses into egypt they introduces chariots into egypt these were horse riders and they engaged in chariot warfare very interesting they had spoked wheels they introduced new weapons into egypt like those curved swords they introduced bronze uh technology copper technology or bronze one of these two into egypt they introduced new musical instruments and such such like and they their religion or culture was polytheistic in nature their greatest god was a god of rain and thunder and storms so the western historians and the consensus is that uh, they this god is identified with the with the uh, mesopotamian storm god baal b a l b a a l baal but um it could also remind you of another god the indo-european god which is which has different names indra in the oldest version and then obviously jupiter zeus uh, thor etc same god thunderbolt and uh, and and the hammer so it could i mean the circumstantial evidence 
such as the the composite double double curved bow the 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 uh, horse riding the chariots the, the 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 thunder god all of that is very the circumstantial evidence does indeed point to possibly uh, a vedic origin of these guys but we still don't have clear unambiguous evidence if you can find some skeletons of these gentlemen who are buried uh, and do some dna analysis that could give some uh, give throw more light maybe if you could uh, compare that with uh, mitanni genetics if any of that is available and obviously with indian genetics obviously we would need to do more genetic research in india as well so right now we are not quite sure we not quite sure right now it is definitely possible that there could be an indian origin or a hittite mitanni kind of origin of these hicksos even though the hittites and mitanni kind of come later but it could be possibly the same people but we are not quite sure needs to be investigated further by historians geneticists scientists etc maybe in 10 20 years we will have a much better picture Chiching says I have noticed that Nagaland cuisine of the far east of or, or the or the far east of India cuisine is similar to southeast asian countries the cuisine of southeast asian countries like vietnam indonesia etc then india's mainland india's why, why is it so right interesting question so uh, once again let's go back to the map and and take a look in case our some of our viewers may not be aware of the far east of india it's called the northeast of india why is the it's why is the far east of india called the northeast of india why is it so you know when the uh, british invaders first colonized india they their their the first region they conquered and colonized was bengal all right bangladesh bengal and from their vantage point in bengal the far east of, of india was to the northeast of bengal and then they wrote research papers or books or whatever calling these regions the northeastern regions the northeast but it was the northeast of bengal not the north, northeast of india and later on this this nomenclature persisted because india's historians who whose greatest joy in life is to ape the westerners they simply carried on calling this region the northeast even though it's the northeast of bengal not the northeast of india as a whole it's actually the east of india or the far east of india anyhow that's that's a different thing that's not the, what the question is about the question is about the cuisine of nagaland and of these uh, other states in the far east of india like uh, arunachal pradesh manipur meghalaya and so on even assam uh, mizoram and so on so if we look at the cuisine or let's take nagaland as an example nagaland is a wonderful place it's in the foothills of the himalayas very hilly region a very nice climate and all that very interesting uh, culture very beautiful local culture uh, lots of different uh, tribal groups and all that um, so if we see the cuisine of this region it's very distinctive and very different from what we find in the the the, the what we call the mainland of india so any cuisine is going to use local ingredients now when you're living in a region like nagaland it's which is hilly which is a very cool climate usually which is thickly forested you're going to use local ingredients right so the if we look at the far east of india geographically it is actually part of southeast asia geographically speaking 
it's kind of part of southeast asia which is myanmar thailand laos cambodia vietnam all that and the the ingredients that are used in the cuisine the herbs and all those things they are the ones you would find locally and these are the the herbs and all those things that are found in southeast asia which is why if you to see the cuisine of nagaland or manipur or whatever they use lots of uh, ingredients which are essentially identical that uh, to what you would find in a market in let's say vietnam very similar ingredient, ingredients there's a lot of fish that is eaten river fish not sea fish and when it comes to nagaland there is a lot of dependence on eating pork pork is one of the main sources of protein um fish also like i said there's a lot of fermented foods that's used a uh, lot of boiled foods so the, the style of co- cooking is there's a lot of boiling um there's the use of turmeric to some extent a lot of uh, red chilies are used or local uh, the 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 what they call the bhut jolokia in assamese the, the the ghost chili extremely extremely spicy that is used uh, fermented bamboo shoots all of that so it's because these are the things that grow locally and also because the people of this region we don't quite know the origins of the various tribes of nagaland of the people of arunachal pradesh of the meite people of manipur and so on uh, the the languages that are spoken in, in this region are called are typically tibeto burman languages so it shows a, a cultural and genetic and ethnic affinity with the people of southeast asia uh, unfortunately our historians have not done their job so we don't quite know where the migrations came from so where what was the origin of the various tribes of nagaland did they migrate into this region right now some how long ago did the migration happen did it happen from myanmar for instance or from yunnan that is temporarily part of china or some other region so in in and even our geneticists have not done the job because there is no real genetic research done into the genetics of uh, of of the far east of india so the historians have failed in doing their job and the geneticists have failed in doing their job so we don't quite know what is the migratory origin of the various peoples who live in this region but if you look at the facial features and traditions and all that it's clear that there is a significant affinity with the people of southeast asia uh so the because of these regions the cuisine is different cuisine is an integral part of culture uh, so you will find lots of similarities between the cooking between the cuisine of nagaland manipur other etc other places to the cuisine in places like cambodia laos vietnam thailand even the yunnan region of uh, present day china the cuisine in yunnan also is heavily dependent on pork as a protein there's all in in, in cambodia etc other parts of southeast asia insects are are a, a significant part of the diet for instance in cambodia uh, people use red ants to add texture and crunch and a little bit of protein to certain meals you know that's how it is i mean wh- what's wrong with that there are other insects like silkworms etc that are that are eaten consumed and so on and you find su- such things in some parts of of the far east of india as well uh, in nagaland i'm sure you you find some of that in assam also possibly arunachal and so on so it's because of these regions these reasons that the cuisine of the far east of india is significantly different from that of the uh, what they call what we call may the so called mainland part of india it's much closer to the cuisine and and and, and culinary traditions of southeast asia and yunnan which kind of hints at an ethnic origin of some of the of some of the tribes of this region which may lie in those regions in maybe southeast asia or in yunnan possibly but definitely not chinese 
there, there is no cultural, ethnic and culinary affinity between the people of the Far East of India and the Han Chinese. None whatsoever. The affinity is, is between the people of, Far East, of the Far East of India and the people of Southeast Asia and possibly of Yunnan. The people who live in Yunnan, the, the, the in, native inhabitants of Yunnan, which is currently a part of China, these people are actually Thai people. They are the same ethnicity as the Thai people. And the Ahom people, the origins of the Ahom people. Very interesting thing. And unfortunately, our historians have not done their job. These are fascinating questions that people are asking. Chiching always asks very interesting questions. And none of the historians have any answers to this because they have done no research. All they do is teach the same old regurgitated, ancient, tired, beaten history that no one cares about. And these questions are still open questions. And they have not addressed them thus far. So hopefully in the coming day, coming years, historians will actually wake up, especially the historians in the far east of India, in the universities, in Nagaland, in Manipur, etc. They will start doing some actual original research, not just, you know, <laughs> what, what they have been doing thus far. Rinigan says Indian academia wrongly represents Manipur's history. Uh, 1814 Manipur was as big as United Bengal, uh, drawn by Matthew Carey. So I'm not sure who this Matthew Carey was or is. Clearly some British guy or something like that. I mean, a British occupier of India and uh, one of their historians. But uh, yeah, see, I've not really seen what India's academia says about Manipur. But what we think of Manipur is, is what the current uh, boundaries of Manipur are, the state of Manipur. Let's put that back on the screen. We are still talking about the far east of India. So Manipur is the state that is to the south of Nagaland and to the east of Meghalaya, south of Assam, north of Mizoram and west of Myanmar or Burma. That is Manipur. So today you have the, a certain geographical extent of Manipur. Now Manipur has been in existence for at least 2000 years, most likely 3500 years. There's this long lineage of, of kings uh, that is recorded in the royal chronicle of the Manipuri kings, the Chaitharal Kumbaba, which most likely goes back to 3500 years before today. And Mani the kingdom of Manipur has obviously over the centuries seen rises and falls. And if you talk about uh, the date the, the date that uh, Rinigan is saying, 1814, the kingdom of Manipur was much larger at the time. So uh, 1814, when did the Burmese invasion of Manipur happen? I think it happened in 1819, the Burmese invasion of Manipur. So uh, you had a number of great kings. Uh, you had a king called uh, Pitambar Charairongba, whose daughter was insulted by the Burmese. His daughter was supposed to marry the Burmese king or the prince. And uh, when the Burmese came to receive her, they said that she's too ugly, send us a different daughter. So obviously the king will be extremely angry about that. And he ordered his son, Pamaiba, to go and attack the Burmese. He did that. He, he I believe he conquered Rangoon, Yangon. And there's a sword... Uh, he threw the spear. He threw his spear at the throne, uh, at the throne of the king or whatever, and it, the mark may still be there or some some such story is there. Um, so this king called Pamaiba, who lived in the 18th century, is the guy who introduced Hinduism properly, Vaishnavism, uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, into Manipur, and then um, then he had a couple of sons, and there was some infighting and all that. Then you had a king called Chingthan Kongba in the 
late 18th century uh, he obviously uh, king thang khongba is also known as bhagya chandra the guy who who set out this set, set about this big renaissance in manipuri culture uh, he he was a great king no doubt but he did not did not leave behind a clear line of succession succession so there was a kind of civil war in manipur after he died at the end of the 18th century uh, three or four sons came to power briefly and they fought among each other and then you had a guy called marjit singh who is the the king who was in power in manipur until i think the burmese invasion of manipur in 1819 and then the burmese invaded manipur devastated manipur seven years of devastation right and that is the event these this seven years of manipur's occupation by the burmese which marks the downturn in the fortunes of manipur and even today manipur is suffering the consequences of that one event so that's how it happened that's what happened so the the kingdom of manipur was much larger in the past there was a king whose name i forget right now he conquered parts of yunnan which is currently part of china um so yes uh, i'm not sure what indian academia has to say about manipur i mean manipuri scholars and professors and historians are part of indian academia what on earth are they doing they're doing nothing i know for a fact that if you go to manipur you will see that the kids are taught the same old history of the moguls and all that and they're not taught the history of manipur at all so it's a sad state of affairs in india uh so yes it is uh, i i don't know what the indian academy writes about manipur but obviously the truth is not being written nothing is the way it used to be so uh i hope that the manipuri academia indian academy gets gets its act together and does some starts doing some actual research and recording the true history of the country yeah it, it's high time we start doing that geopolitical dubey says we have temples universities even coins and ruins of various things of our great emperors but do we still have palaces of the mauryan emperors or the cholas or the kushans or the karkotas or the guptas where they used to live what a fascinating question geopolitical dubey has asked we have ruins ruins in northern india of temples that date back thousands at least clearly more than 2000 years we have ruins of buildings that go back thousands of years in the 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 saraswati sindhu region we have ruins of ancient cities that go back 5 6000 years yes but when it comes to the mauryan era which is 2500 years before today or the kushan era which is about 2000 years before today or the gupta era that is 1500 years before today or the karkota era which is about 1300 years before today roughly roughly or the chola era which is just 1000 years ago where are the great palaces of these great kings we have forts to some extent we have a fort in where is it batinda or something which was built by kanishka but that's a fort it's not a palace a fort is not a palace a fort is a fortified building with a garrison of soldiers inside and all those things so first of all indians tend to conflate the two a fort is a palace no forts are not palaces um so when it comes to the mauryas the capital was patliputra which is present day patna and the ruins of patliputra are kind of outside in the vicinity of present day patna so there is no palace there there is no palace we know that some of the greatest emperors of of our country of our civilization were the mauryans chandragupta maurya ashoka maurya etc where why is there no palace there the kushans 
where they also had an incredible uh, incredibly powerful empire kanishka the greatest of the kushans his empire touched the shores of the caspian sea and the aral sea it also included the entirety of present day xinjiang xing xing whatever it's called in china in chinese and of course much of india so such a powerful emperor who had two capitals uh, one was i believe mathura and one was purushpur which is present day uh, peshawar where are the palaces where is kanishka's palace why is there no palace the gupta emperors they were some of the greatest emperors of all time and and their capital was patliputra initially and then later on it's somewhere else um, where was it mathura was it somewhere else but anyhow there is no gupta palace anywhere the karkotas the karkota dynasty was a short lived dynasty based out of shrinagar where is the palace of lalita ditya muktapida one of the greatest conquerors of all time he conquered much of central asia and tibet where is his palace why is there no palace in shrinagar there is a temple on a hill on the shankaracharya hill in shrinagar there is no palace i mean we know the turkic invaders wanted to destroy all the temples and still the temples temples tend to stand to some extent we still know where the ruins of the universities are but where are the palaces the cholas the cholas conquered the whole of southeast asia all the way to the philippines surely they would have had palaces where are the palaces what i'm trying to tell you my dear friends is that indian emperors and kings did not have palaces their duty their raj dharma or dharma itself was to serve the nation the, the civilization and the people it was not to amass wealth for themselves they would typically have lived in reasonably humble abodes obviously there will be a lot of fortification there will be a lot of security and when you receive foreign dignitaries and all ambassadors and all you have to have a certain amount of dignity and opulence but still they did not live in palaces and this is something you see even in recent times the marathas had this, this enormous empire they liberated india more or less from the turks did they live in palaces they had something called shanivarwada was a, which was a fortified encampment it was not there was no palace as such it was not a palace there was obviously some element of luxury and all that but it was not a palace uh, when it comes to g- the great queen ahilyabai holkar did she live in a palace no she lived in a modest house that house still stands so that's what i'm trying to tell you indian kings no matter and emperors no matter how great and how powerful they were they did not build opulent palaces and show that they were at a different level from the ordinary humans and all that try to prove me wrong find me any evidence of kushan palaces mauryan palaces chola palaces karkota palace or whatever you will not find any Hardik says I have watched all of your Q and A streams. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Hardik. Uh, and never asked a question. Well, here's a question. <laughs> the question is, what's going on in Israel? There's news of anti-government protests due to judicial bill. Do you think that the West is trying to do a regime change operation in Israel through a judicial coup? Very interesting question. So currently, the Prime Minister of Israel is Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu. I believe it is his fifth or sixth term as Prime Minister. So. he is viewed as a very uh, nationalistic prime minister uh, someone who has a robust internal and foreign policy he is viewed as a very right wing politician and leader um, and there's a very strong influence of the left 
in Israel's politics these days. Uh, Israel's uh, governance system, ruling system, is in, it's the parliamentary system, which is kind of a copy, a knockoff of the British Westminster system, kind of what we have in India today. And historically, if you look at the past 10 governments or so, you will see that most of them have been coalition governments. So it's a very unstable system for some reason. That's how Israel has been designed. Very unstable system. Always a coalition government, always negotiations and compromises and all that. And prime ministers typically, well, they tend to not last the full term, you know, five years or whatever the term is. I think it's five years. So prime ministers, prime ministers come and go. You had, uh, I forget the names, Nadav Lapid, was it? No, 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 not that guy, sorry. Uh, who was the prime minister? Yair, Yair Lapid, I think it was. And then you had the Naftali Bennett and various other people who have come and gone, come and go, gone a few months. So now Benjamin Netanyahu is back. And now he has introduced this bill uh, to reform the judicial system in Israel. So let's take a look at the judicial system in Israel. What is it like? Shall we find out? It's interesting. And let's find out why he wants to reform this. So about the Supreme Court of Israel, the Supreme Court consists of 15 justices. That number is established by the Knesset, which is the parliament of Israel and has varied over the years. Uh, the most senior justice is designated president of the court and the next senior justice is deputy president. Justices and all other Israeli judges are appointed by something called the Judicial Selection Committee. Okay, that's the body that appoints Israeli judges. It is a body composed of three Supreme Court judges, two cabinet ministers, two parliamentarians, and two representatives of the Israeli Bar Association. Let's take a different look at this. Okay, the, the um, this committee, it has two members of the Bar Association, the Chief Justice and two other judges, which makes it five, and then two parliamentarians and two ministers. So there are five people from the, from the judiciary and four people from the parliament, which means that the judiciary dominates this body. All right. So uh, the Judicial Selection Committee in Israel is dominated by the judiciary. The judiciary is not elected by, by anyone. So it's kind of the judiciary appointing itself. It reminds you of a certain other nation, doesn't it? Which nation would that be, I wonder? So in Israel, the there is some say for the justice minister and the cabinet minister and two parliamentarians. But if the judiciary sticks together, they can every time get their thing done and appoint people of their choice. So essentially in Israel, you have an unelected judiciary which keeps appointing itself. That's the situation. All right. And in Israel, the thing is that the judiciary has the power to strike down any law that the uh, Israeli parliament passes by saying that it's unconstitutional or whatever, even though the, the nation of Israel does not have a written constitution. But the judiciary can do it if it so desires. So there is an unelected judiciary in Israel with a veto over parliament. So the parliament can pass a law and the judiciary can strike it down, saying that it's unconstitutional or whatever. That's a problem. The people have to be supreme in any nation, not unelected judges. I'm talking about Israel here, all right? Israel, 
I'm not talking about anything else. So that's the problem. So now what Benjamin Netanyahu has done is that he's introduced a, a bill or bills or whatever it is, which seeks to redress this problem. It's going to give parliament uh, more say in appointing the judges of the judiciary. And secondly, it will take away to a large extent the judiciary's power to strike down any law or act of parliament. So if the judiciary says something and the parliament votes in majority against whatever the judiciary is saying, then the parliament will be supreme. A simple majority is all that will suffice. So because this Netanyahu has introduced uh, this new legislation, there suddenly what has happened in Israel is that there are these massive protests. Thousands of people protesting. They are saying that, uh, the, that Netanyahu is trying to end the independence of the judiciary. I'm sure we've heard that somewhere before. Yes. So hundreds of thousands of Israeli protesters, protesters have appeared overnight. Overnight, spontaneously apparently. But well-organized protesters, well-coordinated protests. But somehow it's spontaneous apparently. That is what is happening. And you will find people like Yuval Noal Harari who are part of the Western liberal cabal who are protesting against Netanyahu. And they are also trying to trying to bring in the, the Palestine issue that um, we are not only protesting against the judicial thing, but also about Palestine, that Israel treats Palestinians badly or whatever. But the main thing is that they are trying to secure and they, they, they are trying to ensure the continuation of the supremacy of the unelected judiciary in Israel, which obviously is kind of undemocratic. So Netanyahu actually is trying to bring more democracy into Israel. But these protesters are saying that you are trying to... Uh, Tried to trying to end the independence of the judiciary and end the system of checks and balances and all those things. So um, the question is, who is organizing these protests? Who is coordinating everything? Who is funding everything? Now, we know that Israel is, is a very close, we could call it ally of the U.S., a very close relationship between Israel and, Israel and the U.S. Lots of American citizens have also, also have Israeli citizenship, citizenship dual citizenship. Lots of Israeli origin people, Jewish people are are in very powerful positions in the U.S. So, and and Israel has essentially been the the West's linchpin in the Middle East region in keeping the entire region unstable and keeping the Arab Arab nations balanced out, under check, under threat all the time, so that they can keep supplying oil quietly. So Israel is very important. Control of Israel is very important for the U.S. So. One of the ways of controlling a nation, see, you can control the politicians, but when you have an unstable system, which is by design unstable, where you have coalition governments that come and go, come and go, then it makes more sense to control an organ of the government that is more stable, which is ideally unelected, like the judiciary. So it is possible, one could say, one could you know, we have seen lots of regime change operations, color revolutions and all that. These organized so-called spontaneous protests in Israel show the same characteristics as, let's say, the Maidan revolution in, in, in Ukraine or the recent uh, color revolution attempt in Georgia. Suddenly, spontaneously, thousands of people appear and they start protesting in a very coordinated fashion against the government, show of force on the streets, street power. That is typically what happens in these U.S. mediated regime change operations worldwide. 
so yeah it it has all the, all the hallmarks of a of a you know us mediated color revolution so they the, the us would like the judiciary to remain uh, more powerful more powerful than the parliament of israel that way they can control uh, the proceedings and and the 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 direction in which the nation goes in the long run on the long run so it is a possibility i'm not saying it is the case the possibility definitely exists do we have evidence that it's be all being done from the us we have no evidence of that but look at the pattern of the past 20 years all the color revolutions that have happened this what's happening in israel shows the same pattern but that is not conclusive evidence so we don't have conclusive evidence but there is a pattern which strongly suggests it could be a continuation of what the us has been done has been doing in other nations so yes it is possible that the west is trying to do a regime change operation in israel through a judicial coup but i have no evidence of that we don't have any evidence of that it is definitely a possibility the possibility cannot be ruled out Daniel Nicholson says amongst the great the global powers that includes India none of the nations are democratic in the true, true sense of the term is it even possible to even dream of becoming a dominant civilization with our current current democratic setup is it about time to change our real democratic setup and shift into a one party almost elected autocratic system <laughs> okay let's look at the history of the 20th century there were two two superpowers two superpowers the us and the ussr the ussr was very clearly an autocracy a one party state no democracy no elections elections if they were held were kind of sham elections so that is a naked autocracy a naked dictatorship look at the us now it's very become very clear now that the pentagon has more power than the white house the pentagon recently blocked the white house attempt the white white house's attempt to go to to help the international criminal court uh build a case against vladimir putin so the, the white house is the elected government and president of the us and what joe biden and his and his administration was trying to do the pentagon the military establishment blocked it which clearly tells you that the military establishment the unelected invisible military establishment of the us is more powerful than the president and the elected government of the us so the relationship between the pentagon and the white house is essentially identical to the relationship between rawalpindi which is the pakistan military in islamabad which is the pakistani parliament and prime minister the us is nothing but a much stronger greater larger and more efficient efficient form of pakistan and obviously you have elections and you have presidents who come and go all that is fine and the us is a two party system you only have two real parties if you want to come to power you have to be in one of the two political parties there are other parties that exist nominally but they actually don't matter at all so it's a two party system the us is a two party state which is just one step above a one party system like north korea or communist china so essentially the us is an autocracy masquerading as a democracy the ussr was a naked autocracy so the two great superpowers of the 20th century were autocracies then a new great power emerged which is not a superpower by any means it's a great power it's china communist china this again is a one party state it's a naked autocracy 
if you look at the history of the 20th and 21st century until now you had have had three great powers two superpowers and one great power all three are autocracies that that tells you something now look at look at the history of the world the last 2000 years all the great powers that came and went were empires an empire is an autocracy it's a dictatorship rome was an empire it was not an not a democratic uh, setup it was they, they had emperors um the ottoman empire again em, em, empire look at the history of india whenever india was at its peak the pinnacle it was the mauryan empire the kushan empire the gupta empire the karkota empire the chola empire the maratha empire it was always empires so if you want to truly rise to the top and become a dominant truly genuinely dominant civilization democracy is not going to cut the bill now you will say that i am contradicting myself because from episode 1 i have been saying that i am a strong believer in democracy i am a strong proponent of democracy now how can i say that autocracy is the right way to go <laughs> you have to understand that india has always been a democracy india is the mother is the, is the birthplace of democracy is india is the mother of democracy india always had a hybrid system at the ground level at the city village panchayat level you had democracy people would elect their own officials and those officials would be accountable to the people but on top they were accountable to the emperor or the king so you had democracy on the ground the public officials were elected by the citizens and they were accountable both to the citizens and to the king that way you had a lot of autonomy and independence and democracy at the ground level while having an imperial system on top at the top that way the nation's interest was always taken care of because when you have 53 different opinions you can't take care of the national interest you can't uh, prioritize the national interest you're going to have politics and compromises that's what happens in coalition governments so india always had this hybrid system democracy came out of india you even had kings who were elected the pala empire in bengal look at the history who was the first king how did he come to power he came to power after a century of matsyanyaya chaos and he was elected as king he did not come to power through a political coup or a military grab it was an election so india has always been democratic i believe in democracy democracy is is what empowers the people but you can't have democracy all the way at the top and the the, the real powers in the world are not really democracies they are only pretending to be democracies so <laughs> so that's the deal my friends daniel nicholson again why doesn't the indian government start a state funded corporation like the bbc that would drive india's narrative worldwide why does india lack the political will to do so i i find it very strange i've been well i've been saying in public for the past 2 years but i've been wondering about this for more than a decade why doesn't india have something like the bbc every nation has a has a mouthpiece an official mouthpiece the americans have a whole bunch of mouthpieces cnn fox news MSNBC, all these various outlets, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the New Yorker, um, all that. The British have the BBC, British whatever corporation. <laughs> they have the Guardian, and they have all these other outlets. The Russians have uh, 
they 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 have RT, they have Ria Novosti, they have Pravda, they have Sputnik, the Chinese have CCTV, they have Global Times, all that. The Australians have their thing, the French have their thing, the Germans have their thing, the Japanese have their thing, the Koreans have their thing, Yonhap and all that. India doesn't have anything. Every even middling little power has its own political mouthpiece, which puts forth the of official perspective. India doesn't have it. These days, there are all these self-styled geopolitical commentators who claim to espouse India's national interest. And I'm going to re represent India's national interest in geopolitics and all that. Uh, listen, that doesn't... Yeah, uh, let's not talk too much about that. My point is, the, the Indian government needs to invest in such an organization. I just don't understand why it is not being done. We have this moribund ancient institution called the Doordarshan and Prasar Bharti. They... I don't even know what purpose they serve. Uh, but yes, India needs to create something like the BBC, something like 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 the Chinese Global Times. I, I would not say Global Times, which is very like very unprofessional, but yes, yeah, something like, like the BBC, something like the German DW or 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 the Japanese or the Korean Yonhap or the Russian RT or whatever, something on, of that level that puts forth India's official perspective in front of the global audience from the perspective of India's national uh, national interest. That's what is really needed. I can't believe the government has not done this. Let Twitter say it's a government of India funded organization. So what? So these is what you have is that there are these private news channels in which they have one or two geopolitical analysts or experts of some kind, and they claim that we, we represent India. They don't. They don't. Trust me, they don't. So this is something that needs to happen. And I'm really aghast. It's, it's not being done that. I don't know why it's not being done. Does India lack the, lack the, lack the political win? It will. India clearly doesn't lack the money. So I'm not sure what is lacking. And I don't have the answer to that. Okay, couple of questions. Veer Darbar says, what's your view about the Malaysian airplane MH370, the plane that disappeared in 2014? Swapnil says, the Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 mysteriously disappeared while traveling from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing in March 2014. What causes a flight to vanish from the air surveillance radars? And what likely caused, led this flight, led to this flight going missing with no recovery of the fuselage and the black box. Interesting question. So what happened? So we had this flight uh, from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, which was supposed to go to Beijing and it disappeared. So let's let's take a look at the map and, and see what where this all happened. So we have Malaysia. We have the capital city Kuala Lumpur over here, as you can see. And the flight took off, I think, late at night. It was it's called what's called a red-eye flight, a late-night flight. And it was supposed to go all the way in the north to Beijing. So the, the plane takes off. It, it uh, crosses the Malaysian Peninsula. And it's over the Gulf of Thailand, I believe. And it, it kind of crosses out of Indonesian airspace. And then it turned back. We know it turned back. It, it crossed the Malaysian Peninsula all over again. I think it flew over Penang, I believe, or something. Then it went into the Malacca Strait. And somewhere over the Gulf of Thailand, the transponder, which is an instrument of the plane, was switched off. So it fell off the radar. 
and this happened when it was crossing over from the malaysian airspace into uh, into eventually what would be i believe cambodian or vietnamese airspace <clears throat> so at that time neither of these two nations was looking at the flight and that's when the thing was switched off then it crossed all the way back over malaysia it went over the malacca strait and then there's a mystery as to where it went so there are two uh, there are two arcs that are possible one takes it southwards into the middle of the indian ocean the deep indian ocean southern indian ocean where obviously there's no place to land which means it would have crashed there the other possibility is that there's another arc which takes it all the way into kazakhstan so there was this immarsat immarsat satellite that kept on pinging the the airplane and it was able to get some pings back so clearly the plane was flying for a few more hours and that's the possible route it could have taken but it could not tell whether it went north or south it was only able to measure the distance so that's how we have two arcs two possible arcs that the plane could have taken so the question is what causes a flight to vanish from air surveillance radars so you every every commercial plane has something called a transponder which is a transmitter and responder transponder transmit transmission respond and responding response so uh these uh commercial uh radars which track commercial planes commercial flights they send a signal periodically to every aircraft it's called an interrogation signal it's it's like you're asking a question so the plane picks it up and the transponder responds with a uh, with with an answer which sends a different set of data back to the radar which typically would contain um, the the code of the plane the squawk squawk code of the plane and its altitude and the, some other data so that's how the radar in these air traffic control uh, uh, towers the, that's how the radar knows where each plane is and it's able to track each plane so if you switch off the transponder which is what happened then the plane goes falls off the radar screen it it, it vanishes from the radar screen uh, from the radar from the radar screen of a of a commercial air traffic control tower but it will still appear on the radar screen of of your regular radar which is the military radar so in a military radar you don't look at the transponder response or any of those things you simply send a radio transmission it hits the plane and the waves reflect back of the of the skin of the plane and then it it goes back to the radar and you can see where the where the where the aircraft is so if you have a military radar military grade radar you can keep on tracking the plane even if it switches off all the transponder the transponder in any other instrument so the thing is that the malaysians uh, looks like they did not have a good radar system military radar system so the 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 plane simply disappeared so in case it went all the way to kazakhstan and north it would have had to cross indian airspace and as we know india is a nation with wonderful neighbors so we have a very robust and strong military radar system so if this happened then it would have come on indian radar indian military radar air force radar all that uh, as far as we know it did, did not happen so it looks like the plane would have gone southwards and uh, made its way all the way into the heart of the southern indian ocean and obviously there is no place to land over there which means it would have most likely crashed now who did this why did this happen we still don't know i believe the the main suspect is the captain of the plane ahmed zahari shah or something that's supposed to be his name i don't remember the exact name you can google it um another possibility is that maybe the plane was hijacked uh maybe so we don't quite know what happened and obviously uh, the plane has never been recovered 
there have been reports that some parts of a Boeing fuselage were found in Réunion or Mauritius or something, or maybe Seychelles. I'm not sure which place, but it's not really conclusive, definitive evidence that it's come from this particular aircraft itself, the MH370. So it's still a big mystery, maybe the biggest mystery in the history of aviation. We still don't know what happened to the aircraft. Did somebody hijack the aircraft and take it somewhere? Or did it simply crash into the Indian Ocean? Or, or what happened and who did it and why was it done? Nobody knows. There are whispers that some nations would know about what happened, exactly what happened. But obviously there is no evidence that's available in the public domain. So it's a huge mystery. So that's how a flight vanishes from air surveillance radars by switching off the transponder. But it's still going to be visible as long as it's in the air to military radar, which doesn't look at the transponder data at all. It simply looks at the physical evidence of an aircraft in the air. Right, next question. Lagiraho Online says, Bro, yo bro, yo sir. Uh, please answer any of the two. Uh, any Okay. Who caused the highest damage to the world? Anglo-Saxon Crusades, Turkic invasions, world wars, or European colonization? Let's take it one by one. Uh, the Crusades were not merely Anglo-Saxon. They were the Catholic Crusades. So um, about a thousand years or so before today, uh, the Middle East, what is currently Israel and Jerusalem, this region was, was, uh, it was under Arabic control. Uh, it was part of the Caliphate. So the, the, the Muslims, the Arabs were controlling, were in possession of this region. So Jerusalem is the, the holy city and uh, the place where Jesus Christ was crucified and all that. So the Catholic Church said that this, this holy city should not be in the hands of of the of the Arabs of the Muslims, so so the Europeans, the Christians need to go and conquer it. So this was a a way. So this achieved multiple purposes. It uh, consolidated the power of the Catholic Church, the Vatican. Yes, uh, it also, to some extent, for some time, ended the infighting in Europe. Europe has this history of constant warfare, constant infighting between the various uh, kingdoms. So it brought all the European uh, princes or kings together for a change and it gave them a common purpose under the leadership and authority of the of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was the real power in Europe and all the infighting, much of it was actually orchestrated by the Catholic Church to maintain its hold and control and power over Europe. So it unified these guys together and sent them on this big, big voyage, this crusade to liberate Jerusalem. So there were these crusades, multiple crusades, and there was some damage done. The, the fighting typically happened in the Middle East. So it did not really cause a lot of damage to the world overall. So one can discount the cru crusades. The Turkic invasions caused incredible harm to the world. Uh, if you look at the, the, the death toll in India itself of the Turkic occupation of India, it will most likely cross 500 million over seven centuries, maybe seven, eight, nine centuries. At least 500 million Indians would have died. You cannot even imagine such a number. Maybe you laugh at my, me saying this, but if you calculate it properly, it will easily come to 500 million. That's the worst genocide in all history. Okay, And much more was done in Central Asia. So it was a demic genocide 
a physical extermination of people and a cultural genocide and a religious genocide. And then you had the, the Turkic uh, invasions, Arabic invasions of Africa, etc., which enslaved much of Africa. And uh, there was this, this slave trade, the Arabic, the, the Arab-mediated African slave trade, in which incredible numbers of uh, African people, men, women, children mainly, women, children, and also men, of course, were taken as slaves to the uh, to the Arabic and Turkic world, and no trace of them survives today. So you can imagine what happened. So the the Turkic invasions were a horrific event, definitely in the in the, in the top three. The world wars, um, the world wars caused a lot of damage. I'm not sure what was the total death toll of the, of the world wars. Definitely less than the Turkic invasions. The Turkic invasions is above world wars, definitely. The European colonization. So the European colonization colonization was one of the most horrific events on all world history. This little bunch, this little uh, little region, Europe, eventually took over the whole world. They colonized North America, South America, wiped out the natives, eradicated their culture, all, all traces of their history. At least 100 million Native Americans were killed off in North America. Who knows how many were killed in South America? Yes. Uh, Asia, Africa, Africa is still colonized. Africa is still dirt poor. Why is it so? Because it is still actively being colonized by Europe, by European powers. Uh, so tremendous uh, destruction in Africa. All the native cultures were wiped out of Africa. We don't even know how many people died. Today, Africans practice foreign religions and they fight each other for foreign religions and they, they speak foreign languages. And obviously the colonization of India, the British killed off at least 100 million Indians, at least 100 million minimum, most likely 150 or 200 million. That's what the British did in India. So I think when it comes to the top two, it will be the Turkic invasions and the European colonization. Uh, they both would have very similar death tolls and similar uh, cultural genocide effects. So the most, the highest damage to the world was done by the Anglo, by by the by the Turkic invasions and the European colonization. The world wars are are a distant third, I would say. Hardik says recently Vladimir Putin said that Germany is not a free country; it is occupied by the U.S. since World War II. This is the same thing which I say. Well, it is it is the truth; it's a fact. Uh, so what impact does this statement make on Germans and Europeans? Not much of an impact. Now most See, most people don't think. Most people simply um, accept what people in authority tell them. This includes most Indians. This is something I face on a daily basis. I see it on a daily basis. Uh, so most people don't think. Whatever the teachers have told them, whatever the media tells them, whatever the politicians tell them, they simply believe it. And you have the faculty of thinking and logical analysis, but they don't use it. So when somebody says a different thing, they will simply laugh it off. They will not pause for a minute and think about it. What are the facts? What is this person saying? They'll simply laugh it off. So I would say that 90% of Europeans will simply laugh off what Putin says and they'll say, what the hell is he saying? He's an evil guy. Why should we listen to him? So it won't make much of a difference. Obviously, there are some intelligent people out there who actually use the brain other intelligent people somehow don't use the brain. So some people will know about it and they will realize that he is right. We know for a fact that Germany has been under permanent US military occupation since the end of the Second World War. Their constitution was written by the Americans by proxy or not so much by proxy. And uh, 
that's how it's been and ever since the reunification of germany the 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 the, the constitution was applied to east germany as well so germany has been under us occupation since the end of the second world war so has italy essentially the entirety of western europe is a big us occupied buffer zone which keeps russia away it was designed to keep the ussr away and after the collapse of the ussr that buffer zone was expanded by moving it eastwards the expansion of nato so so putin has said this openly typically people don't speak about this so he has said this openly it won't make much of a difference to europeans most europeans will not think anything he says they will say it's the words it's the words of the bad guy putin is worse than hitler this is that's what they say so it's going to make not much of a difference people simply won't take him seriously and they won't think about the merits or demerits of what he is saying based on actual facts on the ground just look at the map of how many foreign military bases are on your territory that itself will tell you that you are under foreign military occupation but they won't think about it unfortunately rakhi says what language was spoken by the gypsies in the 17th century i have been trying to look it up but i only found that some it was some old indo aryan language and its history is undocumented it was evolved from sanskrit and upper branch prakrit i am writing a book based on the based in the early 1600s in greece there's a scene where some gypsies perform a dance number and i don't know which language to write their song in since they were from rajasthan and gujarat will it be all right if i write in the old western rajasthani or marwari language it's not necessary but i want to have a few lines to elevate the reading experience see the gypsies the so called gypsies the romani people they uh, it's a long story i will not go into it i've spoken about it multiple times uh, many historians will say that they uh, the, the romani language is closely related to punjabi which is not true the romani language is most closely related to sindhi gujarati and in rajasthani marwari these are the three modern indian languages that come closest to the romani language that is spoken by romani origin people in europe uh, and some of the romanis are called sinti they call themselves sinti which obviously means sindhi right so uh, so the, the if you want to write uh, a song lyrics in the gypsy language the romani language i think the best approximation would either would, would most likely be uh, marwari or gujarati or sindhi one of these three languages and older versions of that obviously because they immigrated out of india about a thousand or so years before today so gujarati and rajasthani gujarati and marwari mewadi all these languages they all originate from the old old gujarati language which is which was a prakrit language spoken about a thousand years ago uh, the old gujarati or gurjari language so that would be the language that their ancestors would have spoken and that's evolved into the present day romani language so i think you can use marwari perhaps as an approximation that would work reasonably fine richa says do humans display quantum behavior since their behavior also changes in the presence of an observer <laughs> yes when you're alone you behave in a certain way and when you have observers you behave differently so in quantum mechanics you have particles you know um you have particles in quantum mechanics are described by this mathematical wave function uh, and and these particles are in in a superposition of various states they could be in, in different places at the same time but the moment somebody observe it observes it the wave function is said to collapse and the particle resolves into a single state in one single location so when it's not being observed it's in a number of states in a possibly in a number of different locations at the same time 
that's the weirdness of quantum mechanics but when someone observes it it immediately comes and resolves itself in one state in one single location so that's the quantum behavior of quantum particles human behavior yeah when you're alone you behave in a certain way when people observe you be you behave differently that's true but when no one's observing you you're not in multiple places at the, sa- at the same time so that aspect of quantum behavior is not exhibited by humans we are that way physically classical objects but yes <laughs> interesting question <laughs> all right ishika says Could you please tell about future light cone of an event? Why is it shaped like a cone? How does it, does it divide space-time into past and future light cone? Okay, so um, when you talk about space-time, it's a four-dimensional fabric. We know that space is we we see it, we perceive it in three dimensions: length, breadth, and height. Three dimensions of space, and then time is taken as a fourth fourth dimension in general relativity, and these together. make up the four dimensional fabric of space time so when you want to create a light cone like you're saying you have to treat space uh, space itself as a two dimensional sheet because we don't know how to construct anything in four dimensions so we uh, construct three dimensional uh, diagrams of these events and in which space is taken as a two dimensional fabric let me let me put one of these images on the screen so that you will get some idea of what i'm okay light cone future and all that here we are let us do it so let's take a look at this image there is a, a flat sheet over here it's called the hypersurface of the present it's actually three dimensional space and the the vertical di- dimension the vertical axis is the time dimension so let's say you are at the apex of this cone in the present in this location and an event happens which let's call it a flash of light so the light will travel outwards in space at the speed of light so as time goes by which is the uh, vertical axis the y axis that way the cone will expand the 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 uh how far the light of that flash goes will keep on increasing with the uh passage of time that's why it looks like a cone so in the future all of this space will be uh influenced by that event by the light that comes from the event as time goes by so as time goes by the cone becomes wider and wider if it is right where you are it's uh, the cone has no size because it's it's just happened where you are and there is something called a past light cone itself it doesn't mean that the light goes back into the past the past light cone is the events that have happened in the past that can possibly influence you and any event that's outside the past light cone can in no way possibly influence you ever so the past light cone is about the events that happened in the past that can possibly that could have or have influenced you and the future light cone is whatever event you've set off that flash of light how far will its influence go that's what it is about and that's why it is shaped like a cone shri balram putin says how to define the solar system what is the range so the the sun is our star the sun gives us light gives us life the nearest star is proxima centauri 4 point something light years away so from that perspective the range of the solar system is half of that distance so uh the range of the solar system is essentially how far the gravitational influence of the sun 
predominates how far from the sun itself so um there are multiple ways of defining this so gravity itself is an infinite force the force of gra- the gravitational effects of any object go out into infinity but they predominate only up to a certain extent so when you have a star in space its gravity will will be predominant in a certain region beyond which the gravity of another star will become the predominant force so that is the range of the solar system now you have something called the oort cloud o o r t c l o u d let's put that on the screen the oort cloud so that could be taken as the boundary of the solar system it is a hypothetical spherical region of uh, icy bodies or icy objects it's where the comets come from cometary nuclei and this uh, goes out all the way to more than one light year most likely up to 3 light years away but if you go that far then you will come under the influence of a neighboring star most likely there are prox- there are a lot of other stars in in our neighborhood including sirius proxima centauri centauri uh, tau ceti epsilon eridani and so many more so i think the uh, the range the limit of the solar system would be about roughly 2 light years outwards from the sun which would be the outer range of the oort cloud that would be the outer boundary so to say of the solar system krishna krishna das says european invaders made false claims of satyapratha devotees getting crushed under the rath in puri jagannath puri and uh, we they also destroy the native american history by putting false information like the aztecs sacrificed humans by slicing their chest and offering the still beating heart to their deities and so on um yeah it's possible it's possible see the history of south america as we know it is the history that was written by the colonizers the native records of their own history do not survive they were all destroyed by the missionaries by the colonizers by the colonizers uh they had their own script they had their own language it's all been destroyed in most parts of south america the natives don't even speak their native languages anymore they speak spanish in brazil they speak uh, portuguese um so it's been a horrific cultural genocide even the languages have been wiped out and all the writing has been destroyed which means there is no way to decipher the script in in, in some cases uh so whatever we know of their past of their history is whatever the european colonizers and missionaries have written about it so clearly there's going to be a lot of atrocity literature which would serve the purpose of justifying the european colonization of the americas the the the, uh, the argument will be that they were so primitive and savage and violent that the colonization was a great boon for them and the imposition of christianity was a civilizing mission that is what european historiography always does whether it is in the americas whether it's in india or anywhere else africa or anywhere else so we know that there was that they had these customs of uh, well of of uh, sacrificing people now if you look at statues and depictions of goddess kali goddess durga she is depicted these goddesses are depicted with a garland of severed human heads does it mean that indians sacrificed ritual sacrifice and all that no these goddesses represent the victory of good over evil and the garlands of heads the garland of heads is the heads heads of evil doers of evil people who deserve who who, who would have deserved to be put to death 
so in every civilization in every culture in every nation you historically you have had the death penalty you do certain things you cross a certain line you're going to be put to death and and often you would have a prisoners of war who would be put to death for whatever reason sometimes in war you don't take prisoners right you have to do some this has happened everywhere so often times it's executions of 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 enemies or of criminals but then it it gets maybe they would do it once a year on top of the pyramid and that's what the europeans saw and then that's what they portrayed as as being uh, executions of or ritual uh, religious executions of 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 uh, innocent people we don't know what quite happened but it's a very significant possibility because you cannot trust what the europeans have been saying because they colonized and destroyed all these places and then they wrote the history so the history will obviously be self serving history we know what they have done to india the kind of history they wrote about india sati and and all those all that atrocity literature so there were these things called thompantlis thompantli in in um, mexico etc which were racks of skulls severed heads so this is an example so you have some actual evidence of that of uh, these racks of head constructed this is in mexico city you can see that uh, the native architecture has been superimposed by colonial architecture religious architecture you know and many of these somalis are simply uh, you know they are simply carvings of skulls into rock not actual skulls in rock you can see lots of those these things uh, over here as well or here as well these are not real skulls and uh, some of it would have looked like that so some of it would have happened what, what was the purpose of it was it actual executions of criminals hap- which happened once a year or so which these people witnessed uh, the europeans witnessed and then blew out of proportion we don't know but i would be very cautious about trusting anything the europeans wrote about the people they conquered and destroyed mazar says if india were to become an economic superpower and also unite like the eu in the future how would the public perception of historical figures such as jinnah nehru and gandhi be impacted who played pivotal roles in the partition of the indian subcontinent and how would freedom fighters like netaji bose and others be viewed who sacrificed their lives for the motherland see public perception of historical figures is an evolving thing it keeps evolving uh we know very well see it, it's happening right now the per- perception of people like jinnah nehru and gandhi is changing to some extent as we speak right now indian kids are taught in school college university that, that people like nehru and gandhi were were superheroes they were saints it's it's not history that you're taught it's hagiography that you're taught taught fake embellished history that that hero worships these people the truth is that people like jinnah nehru and gandhi were instrumental in helping the british and the west achieve its geopolitical their geopolitical aims by partitioning india the people of india were never consulted into about whether they wanted a partition or not there were these fake elections and all in 1946 held under foreign occupation which have which which are cannot be recognized as a democratic process by any means whatsoever so uh, the public uh perception of these people will change over time it's an evolving uh thing if india let's say 100 years from now india is reunified which is a significant possibility which is a very strong possibility well in 100 years time 
the historians from 100 years from now, our descendants, will definitely look at these historical figures, hopefully from a much more realistic and evidence-based perspective. Right now, we are taught the opinions of certain so-called historians. But let's see the facts. Who did what? If you look at it that way, it's a whole different story emerges. Anybody with half a brain can see that. So I think over time, the the contributions of these individuals will be reevaluated, and hopefully their 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 careers will be viewed from a more realistic perspective, including heroes like Netaji Subhashchandra Bose who sacrificed their lives for the motherland. Okay, I think we are almost at the end of today's. Uh, let's take a couple of more questions. Um, Abhigya says. When why everything bad about India is India, but anything good from India is South Asian? What is this, and what is the West trying to achieve by drown, by downplaying India everywhere? Okay, what is this so-called South Asia? Let's take a look at the map. Let's take a look at the map of Asia. First of all, there's no such thing as Asia; it's Eurasia. Europe is not some separate entity. So it's it's this giant continent called Eurasia. They have separated Europe somehow. It's an imaginary separation, like the like the imaginary uh, imaginary boundaries that dogs have on the streets. This group of dogs has this region, and there's an imaginary boundary somewhere. There's another group of dogs over here, and if a dog crosses this imaginary boundary, the other other group starts barking at him. So that's kind of what they've done between Europe and Asia. Imaginary boundary. It's just one continent, Eurasia. Now, if you want to talk about the south of Asia. It would most likely be Indonesia and Papua New Guinea because Indonesia is part of Asia. So, um, so we don't. So, so that's how it is. So it's it's a fake nomenclature, fake terminology that is, that has been constructed. South Asia, the correct terminology is the Indian subcontinent. That's what it has historically been called. So. Anybody who uses the term South Asia, I, I find that person very suspicious. I wonder what the real motives are. This is an artificial term coined by the West to uh, to take away whatever is good from India. So whenever something good happens, like like let's say this movie RRR won an Oscar. In the West, it was being portrayed as a South Asian movie in South Asian cinema, not Indian. And there was even this this. Uh, reporter who was talking to one of the heroes one of the main actors and calling it an, a south asian movie and he was he had to respond back to her two three times saying it's not a south asian movie it's an indian movie so anything good that comes out of india they will portray it as a south asian thing but when something bad has to be spoken about they'll say it's indian so when they want to report about some fake attack on a church they will say it happened in india it's not a south asian phenomenon when something bad happens outside of India, which has its origin within Pakistan, for instance, like those grooming gangs in the UK, they will say it's South Asian grooming gangs, even though there's not a single Indian in there, Indian origin person. They're all Pakistani origin people. Of course, Pakistan itself originated 70 years ago, but whatever. All those people hail from Pakistan. But they will call it South Asian grooming gangs. So it is a deliberate thing. Whatever good comes out of India, they want to ascribe it to the whole of the region, and including Pakistan. But if anything bad is there, they want to pinpoint it down to India only. So this is all about maligning India and not letting the rest of the world know what's good about India. If anything good happens, they will say it's it's collectively South Asian. So yeah, uh, it's jealousy. It's jealousy. 
the fact is that india is the only nation that is on track in this century to surpass the us it's not going to happen next year next week next decade by 2050 2060 india is going to go ahead of the us economically militarily we will see so by 2050 china will no longer be number 2 china will be number 3 and by 2060 or so at the latest india will surpass the us india is the future this is not the asian century or the chinese century this is the indian century and there's a huge amount of jealousy in the west that we ruled over you for more than two centuries we tried our best to totally destroy you and you have rebounded and you're going to surpass us and this is something they're not able to swallow and digest so there's a huge amount of jealousy there's a big amount of hatred towards india and that's why they use all these terms to downplay anything good that comes out of india and to downplay any of india's achievements that is the reason why this term this fake term has been invented by the west whatever the west is you can guess what it is Okay let's take some questions from the live chat i have many more questions which i will not be able to take as usual but let's take a few questions from the live chat before we wrap this episode up if you have any questions please let me know in the live chat aditya says are arabs of indian origin most likely they are not as of indian origin um, the, the arabs are of of semitic origin the semitic people um, so it's a different language family the indian language family is very different from the semitic language family the semitic languages the two major language groups are arabic and hebrew the arabs and jews are actually brothers close relatives so the arabs are not of indian origin at least from the perspective of the language families genetically you will find indian genetics among the arabs from the matrilineal lineages because lots of indian women were taken as slaves in the past 1000 years out of india and they have descendants in 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 the arabic countries you see lots of arabs who look very similar to indians but yeah that's the reason for that um Giuseppe Di Fraia says, "Why do most societies disregard women and treat women like dogs? I am no male feminist by any stretch, but I find it odd and disgusting that many societies treat women like trash. I agree that many societies treat women like trash, and in India also, in some to some extent, some of it is there. Now, historically, India has not never been like this. Historically, Indians uh, India treated women extraordinarily well." indians worship women right and then then we have we have people like virdas who come and say things about that in the past 1000 years foreign culture came into india and foreign practices came into india that's how in some sections of indian society women are treated very badly and if in yeah all that now when it comes to the abrahamic view of women women are inferior to men in the abrahamic world view that's why historically in europe women were property women had no rights uh in the arabic and turkic world also women even now have less rights than than men so it's a cultural thing it's a cultural thing and it 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 all comes down to culture it all boils boils down to culture so the abrahamic religions treat women as inferior to men but the dharmic culture indian culture does not treat women does not see women as inferior but because of the infiltration and influx of 
an, an imposition of Abrahamic culture on India to some extent over the past 1000 years, such practices have unfortunately crept into India as well. So I personally myself agree with you that uh, but it, it's horrible, it's disgusting, it's despicable that women are treated differently and as inferior human beings in some cultures which is obviously unacceptable by any stretch of the imagination. No civilized society, you cannot be a civilized society if you treat women like this. I mean, it has to go without saying. All right, let's take a couple more questions. Um, let me see, let's see who all is there. Um, uh, <laughs> let's take some interesting questions. Why should I not nuke Pakistan? Well, I don't believe in nuking anybody. These See, India and Pakistan obviously have differences. And Pakistan is unfinished business. Pakistan is our ancestral territory. We will take it back eventually. We don't want to nuke anyone. The people who live in Pakistan, they may hate India, but listen, they're also human beings and it's not their fault. So we will not nuke them. The best way to win is to win without fighting. Best way to win is to, is to make the situation such that victory is inevitable. It simply falls into your lap. And the military means have to be the last means. And among the military means, the nuclear means have to be taboo because it's a disaster. So yes, please don't nuke, nuke Pakistan. I, I'm sure you have the means to nuke Pakistan. Please don't do it, sir. Please don't do it. Thank you. Um, um, okay, let's see. This is by Shivam. Any news on thorium-based nuclear reactors in India or, and or recent progress to getting there? I am not sure about what the progress is like. Uh, we know, we are told that India has the world's most advanced thorium nuclear reactor program. But I'm not sure if we have any, I mean, what the progress has been like. Maybe it's kept under wraps because such things should not, well, you know, you should, information about sensitive, sensitive matters should be given out on a need-to-know basis. So maybe, so so I don't really know what the status is, whether has, there has been any big breakthrough or so. Ideally, we would want all of our nuclear reactors to be powered by thorium because thorium is available in such incredible abundance in India. But obviously, you would have to uh, devise means of extracting the thorium from the monazite sands that are available on the west coast of India. India has about a quarter of the entire planet's thorium reserves. So it makes sense for India to invest in thorium technology, but I don't know where it has reached thus far. It's a good question. Maybe I should maybe I should uh, reach out to somebody who would know about this and, and perhaps do a podcast or something. Alright, let's do one last question. One last question. Do we have any interesting question? Shivam says, shouldn't be exposed. I agree, sir. I agree. Have you seen Rocket Boys? I haven't seen Rocket Boys. Ajay says, what's the what's the dragon, rapid dragon launching, missile launching system? Can it be integrated? I, I don't know what it is. I, I've not heard of it. Should I have heard of it? I'm not sure. I will, I will, I will look it up. I will not do the research on live, but I will look it up. Maybe next time you can ask the same question in the comments next time, and I will I'll take it up. So I will look into this. Thank you for the question. I appreciate that. Why are the number of animals increasing behind me? Ah, yes, animals are proliferating. I we would like to have more animals in the environment. You know, so there's there's this this horse, there's this elephant over here. There are these sangai deer here. There's a rhinoceros here, and I would uh, like to increase this this 
menagerie a little bit more. <laughs> right? Right. Okay, let's see. Do we have one more question? Um, what's India's uh, permanent seat on the US UN Security Council? Um, listen, you, when you say that all countries except China are in agreement with India's bid, that's not really true. The Americans know that China will oppose it. That's why they are saying verbally that we will support India's bid. If China suddenly agrees, the Americans will now launch objections. Okay, so nobody wants to give up the power that they have. So let's stop talking about this permanent seat in the UN Security Council and let's build some genuine power. Let's become so powerful that the UN Security Council doesn't even matter anymore. Indians, see, I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody in, or pointing figures at anybody in specific, but Indians, we don't understand what power is. We don't understand how geopolitics works. All these, uh, all these positions and accolades and honors, we don't need them. What we really need is power and, and, and big economy and military strength. That's what gives you real power and influence in the world. And once you have that, all these little fancy things like a permanent seat and all, they don't matter. So that is what India needs to focus on. Build the economy, focus on manufacturing, become the largest economy in the world in the next by, by 2050, hopefully, and build a military that is proportional to that economic strength. That's what India needs to focus on. And with that, I'm going to end this episode of the of the of the ask of the ask Abhijit show. Thank you very much for all your questions. Thank you for watching, and I will see you in the next episode, hopefully soon enough. Until then, take care. See you. Bye.